Welcome to this episode of the Security Clearance Careers Podcast, ClearCast, your source for security clearance, intelligence community, espionage, national security, and defense contracting updates in our exclusive interviews with intelligence community and government leaders. Hello, hello, and thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Security Clearance Careers Podcast. I am Katie, Content Marketing Manager with ClearanceJobs.com, and today we have Marisol Maloney, and she is a U.S. Navy veteran with an eclectic background. She's a former enlisted sailor turned Fleet Marine Forces Navy Nurse Corps officer who later became an all-source intelligence officer while dabbling in project management, and she is a secret squirrel whisperer, so she is a recruiter that works in and around the Clearance Jobs platform. So after working as a contractor, she turned to recruit those secret squirrels and it provided more flexibility in working outside of the SCIF. So she is an expert on online branding. And today we're going to talk about how she was able to master the military transition, pivot her career to working outside the SCIF and how cleared recruiters can master reaching veteran talent. So Mary Soul, thank you so much for joining me today. Hi, thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Excellent. So eclectic background is an understatement, I feel like, but I feel like all of your different roles have really helped you in transitioning from from the military and then obviously as a recruiter reaching different types of candidates. But first, let's talk about active duty and how you were able to pivot careers from medical to intel. Yeah, so I came in the Navy, undesignated, and at the time we were called strikers. So eventually I became an aviation storekeeper, now they're called logistics specialist, and I did that for a while. Then I got a Navy Nurse Corps scholarship. So I was a nurse for 10 years. I specialized in emergency nursing. And after 10 years, I kind of burned out. So I decided to do something else. I decided to do a lateral transfer, which was not easy. The nurse corps <laughs> did not want to release me. So uh, being a very persistent person and determined person, I uh, decided to apply again and again. So it took me three tries before the nurse corps would release me. And eventually I got accepted into the intelligence community. And to this day, I'm the first nurse corps officer to successfully transition into the intelligence community. So that was uh, very exciting for me. And then I did my time, did my 20 years. I retired in 2019. And I decided to take a break. I was a little tired from, you know, 20 years of going hard. Worked on my project management certification. And then I decided to apply to contracting roles as an Intel analyst. And I was hired by Firebird AST. And I was also hired by SortTech as an intelligence consultant part-time. So I was uh, excited to get these new roles post-military career. Great. Well, yeah, I'd love to ask you about sort of working multiple roles in contracting. But first, tell us a little bit more about your transition when when you went through that and maybe any obstacles that you were able to overcome, some things that, you know, current transitioning military should maybe look out for. Yeah. So like most transitioning military, when you first get your orders, whether they're discharge orders or retirement orders or separation orders, you get excited, nervous, maybe a little scared, and you try to figure out what you want to do next. And I think that's the most challenging part for many transitioning service members is figuring out what to do next. Because when we're in active duty, we're a jack of all trades. Even though I was a nurse, I was doing project management stuff. And same thing with Intel. I was running large-scale exercises and doing all these side roles that had nothing to do with my actual duties. 
they call they're called collateral duties in the military. So I had many of those, and many of us have those collateral duties. So when we try to leave the military, we struggle. We have like that identity crisis, like what am I going to do next? And so uh, the last six months of active duty, I researched all the jobs that were available that related to my skill set. And I did think about going back into medical field for a split second. I said, no, you know what? I want to stick to intelligence. It's what I really like doing now. So I will try to do that. So the main thing is trying to figure out what you want to do next. And I encourage people to start looking at job descriptions in the civilian sector. Figure out, do you want to do contracting? Do you want to do federal work? Or do you want to go work for bigger companies like Microsoft, Amazon? And just figure out exactly what excites you. You don't have to keep doing the same roles that you did while you were in the military. So if you did aviation, you can transition to something else. And a lot of our skills are transferable. The hardest part is figure out how to use that civilian language to communicate to the civilian employers that we do bring a lot of value to the table. And many transitioning service members struggle with that. So again, I always tell people to do your research. And yes, you'll go to TAPS class and you'll get an introductory course on how to do a resume, but that's not enough. You have to continue to do your research. You have to YouTube stuff if you have to. Go to Google. Try to find a mentor that has been there, done that. Don't talk to other active duty members about your transition because they don't know what you are going through. And it's easy to listen to your captain or your master chief or sergeant major telling you what it's going to be like when you get out, when in reality, they don't know themselves. They haven't been through that process yet. So I encourage transitioning service members to talk to other veterans or those who are ahead in the transition process. Maybe they're a year ahead or they've you know, recently transitioned and ask them, what were your struggles? What were your hurdles? And take notes. But I encourage you to seek out those who have already transitioned out and have been out for maybe a year or two to give you some guidance. Sure. And that's a great tip. You want to have multiple mentors that are at those time frames out, you know, a year out, maybe even five years out, and then someone who's 10 years out. And that's, you know, another thing, having multiple men- mentors is highly encouraged. So let's talk about working inside the SCIF as a contractor. And I know this is kind of a hot topic today just because the way that contracting sort of was forced to to be during the pandemic, we were forced to look a little bit more at open source and think about like what are the motivating factors for the workforce? Why are those leaving? You know, they're looking for more work-life balance. They're looking to work in a in a building that maybe has windows. So let's talk about you working inside the SCIF as a contractor, some of the pros and cons there. And then I'd love to hear maybe a little bit more about having multiple contracting jobs and how you were able to do that. Yeah. So working in a SCIF as a contractor versus being on active duty was great because I only had to do my eight hours and go home. Whereas when I was on active duty, I would do 12 hour days in the skiff and that was very exhausting. And, you know, I would come in on the weekends, but when you're a contractor, you can't do more than 40 hours per week. And if you do have to do overtime, you have to run it by your bosses first and it has to be approved. So it's different. You can't just keep going like you used to. And being military, we are programmed to keep going and keep grinding. So when you become a civilian, you do have to shift that mindset a little bit and try not to go past your eight hours, which is tempting. The work will always be there. You need to stop what you're doing, go home and enjoy life. So I would say that was a pro that I had to stick to the hours that I was given. And then just not having to be in charge of so many people. When you're on active duty, especially the more senior you are, 
you're in charge of maybe a, a team of 10, 20, 30. I was in charge of 75 people when I was a senior intelligence analyst. And being a civilian, you're just in charge of your job. The one assignment that you have to do, the intel that you have to do, that's all you have to focus on. And it's great. It's glorious. Uh, you don't have to worry about essentially babysitting grown men and women like you did when you were on active duty. So that's the pros for me as a contractor. The cons, as you mentioned, being in a skiff can also be draining at times, especially for me. I had just had a baby, so my baby was in daycare. And it was stressful not having access to my cell phone in the event that I was called. And my work phone's voicemail did not work, even after I put in several requests to have it fixed. And so when you work in a skiff, I don't think people understand how important it is for the outside world to be able to get a hold of you in case of emergency. So for example, I gave my daycare like three different numbers of my supervisors to call in the event my child got sick and needed to be picked up. Luckily, my child only got sick like once or twice, but the anxiety of missing an emergency call was real because I had no one to rely on to pick up my child since I had no nearby family and my husband was deployed. And I think that's something that makes people hesitant to work in the skiff, especially after COVID. Everybody sat back and reanalyzed to figure out how they could better have that work-life balance and not just be stuck in one room all day long. People want to go outside. They want to detach from the computers and, you know, get some fresh air. But it's kind of hard to do when you're constantly doing intel analysis and doing briefs all day. Or maybe you do briefs in the morning. But still, people like to detach sometimes and just walk away from that, which isn't so easy in the skiff. Sure. And, you know, that's a really great point, you know, speaking to you having your first child and working inside a skiff and having to give three different numbers. I think, uh, I mean, this is a whole other conversation, but it's certainly one I've had with multiple women and working mothers in national security and how, you know, in previous decades, they may it may have not been by federal agencies or the intelligence community in favor of working mothers. But, you know, I, I think that that is changing, especially when we look at some of these hybrid contracts or even sort of the way that this industry is moving. I'm hoping that it's in favor of working mothers because, I, I mean, even your situation being a military spouse and a veteran, but working full time and having your husband deployed, I mean, that's just, that's crazy town. So now kind of moving on to your first recruiting job after, you know, transitioning from being a contractor, I'm sure that was, you know, recruiting has its woes, but I'm sure that was a breath of fresh air. Um, so tell me what was attractive about it to you and how were you able to translate those skills from working in, as an intelligence analyst into recruiting intelligence analysts? Yeah. So I had, because I was a military spouse, I had to leave my job with Firebird as an intel analyst to follow my husband to his next duty station. And so I thought I was never going to work with Firebird again. And I really like working with them. I like the leadership and the fact that they took a chance of me post-military career. So I had to leave that job. And then six months later, when I got settled in to a new location, Firebird contacted me and told me that they had a recruiting position available. It was in the DC area. However, we had moved to California, but due to the pandemic, they made it a remote job. And they liked that I already had the Intel background. I already knew what was required of these Intel roles. And also 
because I like people. I really do enjoy talking to people. So they reached out to me and asked me if I would consider it. And still having the military mindset, I was like, yes, challenge accepted. Let me try something new. And I figured, well, if I don't like it, I'll just quit. I'm a civilian. I can do that. And here I am a year later, and I love what I do. I really enjoy talking to candidates, especially because most of my transitioning service members are reaching out to me for these roles. And usually I'm the first recruiter that they will ever interact. And so I'm able to provide a little bit of mentorship as well and talking about the roles that we have available and how they can posture themselves to be qualified for these roles and even other roles. So I, I really enjoy what I do now. Yeah. And it, it really does seem like a, you know, a natural fit for folks that may be a little bit burnt out on the contracting side. That, that's an easy thing to think about because recruiters, I feel like, are always going to be in demand. So one of the things that, you know, as a candidate and as an employer or recruiter that you really need to have today is a, a really good online brand, especially from a recruiting perspective now that you know, the ball is sort of in the candidate's court. It's really tight market. So mastering an online brand, you've clearly done this if anybody follows you as a recruiter. So tell us a little bit why it's important for both the cleared candidate side and employers and recruiters to have that good online brand. Yes, for candidates, branding yourself is very important because it lets people know what you're all about. Networking and self-promotion helps you get known in your community and helps you build your reputation. People want to know what your thought process is. Are you a mover and a shaker or a negative Nelly who constantly complains and blames others for your own shortcomings? Are you a thought leader in your industry? Are you helping others? Do you inspire others? It's also important for employers and recruiters to work on their brand because at the end of the day, people want to work with people, not just a brand. Employees stay in jobs when they feel valued and respected and they respect their leadership. There's a saying that says, if you don't brand yourself, someone else will an outcome that might not be in your favor. So it is important to put yourself out there and letting people know what value you bring to the table and what kind of services and goods you offer that people want to buy into. Absolutely. And I, I really like that quote, you know, if if you don't create your own brand, someone will do it for you. And so it's, it's best to control the narrative, but, you know, put out yeah, what candidates uh, from an employer perspective, yeah, putting out information that candidates are going to care about when they're trying to evaluate one offer to the next is really important. So advice for candidates, though, that may be seeking work. I, you know, it, it's crazy to me. I still get so many messages that cleared candidates with an active clearance, they're still having a tough time finding work. So it is out there. So tell us, what advice were you, would you offer them for anything on resumes, interviews, salary negotiations, or anything throughout the hiring process? Yes. Uh, for the candidates, the candidate experience starts with the candidate. You have to do your research. You have to understand what roles are out there that align with your background. The number one reason that I reject applications is because candidates don't have the right clearance. If a government contracting role says must have top secret SCI with Poly and you only have a secret, you will get rejected, even if you meet the other requirements. So you have to pay attention to the requirements. I always tell candidates to read the full job description, go line by line where it says the requirements and check off the ones that you do meet. Make sure you put those requirements that you do meet on your resume. Oftentimes, because I have the Intel background, I know what a lot of Intel analysts bring to the table, but it's missing that information on the resume. 
And because I've done the Intel analysis, I still call these candidates to get more information from them, whereas a civilian recruiter may pass on them. So it's important to definitely speak to your skill sets on your resume and make sure that you're answering what the requirements say on the job description. So for example, if a job says must have Microsoft Office experience and you have that experience, but it's not on your resume, they need to make sure you put it on your resume. So the recruiter reading it says, oh, okay, they do have Microsoft experience. So make sure the information matches. Sure. And I mean, it seems so simple, but don't make assumptions. You know, people would make the assumption, well, everyone today knows Microsoft Office, but don't make the assumption that the recruiter can just read in in between the lines on your experience. And I'd love to hear if you've had this experience, Marisol, but I don't argue with the recruiter on your clearance if they've already verified it with their FSO. I've had so many candidates just argue with me up and down, even after I verified that their clearance is not what they say it is. So have you ever had an experience like that with a candidate? No, I have not, not necessarily that way. Usually they are confused. They'll say, but I thought my clearance was good to go. Or they'll have a gap from the last time they used their clearance. They might say, well, I last used my clearance in 2019 and I know my top secret clearance is good for five years. Well, yes, they need to understand that you have to get picked up by a company to sponsor you within two years from the last time you used your top secret clearance or else it will expire. And that's what a lot of people don't understand, especially transitioning service members. So always tell them to get a letter from their security officer that shows when they were adjudicated and basically how long their clearance is. So they have that information because, you know, time passes, you will forget when you were last adjudicated. And so you go into a you go to apply for a role and your clearance is expired and then they're confused and they think you're the problem when really they didn't do their due diligence to make sure their clearance was still good to go. Sure. That's a great point, especially getting that information. If you're planning to take a little bit of break in between work and gain a certification like you did within your experience. And the other thing I'll note here, especially for salary negotiations is don't base what you say you are looking for in terms of a minimum requirement, especially as a transitioning service member, based on what your current salary is. Do that market research and see what they're offering for the role that you're applying for. And of course, take your experience into consideration, but you shouldn't be applying to positions that you really don't qualify for. So do do that type of research because sometimes there is disparity between what you did make in the military and then what a contract position is offering based on a different location. And so, yeah, thanks for all that advice for active candidates seeking work. But let's kind of pivot back to, you know, being a recruiter. Why is that such a decent job for cleared candidates who maybe want to pivot, who might be burnt out in a contract capacity, but still want to support national security and maybe work outside the SCIF? I think having the Intel background definitely helps bring that extra flavor to the game that regular recruiters don't have, they don't have the intel background or the experience working in a cleared environment. So it helps you read between the lines when candidates do reach out to you seeking these roles because you've been there, done that. And also being in the military, a lot of us have developed thick skin and you have to have thick skin to do this job. You have to be willing to take rejection well. Because just as some recruiters ghost candidates, candidates will ghost recruiters as well. 
And I like recruiting clear candidates because the majority of my candidates are transitioning service members. And like I mentioned before, they're starting with their transition. So this is my time to kind of mentor them and let them know that it's going to be okay and that I'm going to work with them to help them get these roles if they meet the requirements. Absolutely. Well, thanks, Mary Soul. Everyone, Mary Soul is a veteran. She is a military spouse. She is a recruiter. She also has a couple of side hustles to help mentor folks that are transitioning out of the military. So please check her out. Um, lastly, I ask every veteran this. So a uh, favorite place that you were stationed and why? I, I, I have a travel itch, so t- tell me yours. Ooh, my Twilight duty station. I retired out of Indo-PACOM in Hawaii. And my last job there was a speechwriter for the combatant commander for Admiral Davidson. And I just enjoyed my time there. I enjoyed the location, the job I was doing, the people. And so leaving Hawaii was hard, but I would say that was my favorite station. I went out with a bang. <laughs> yeah. Well, Hawaii is on a lot of people's list, so I'm thinking that needs to be my next destination. But everyone listening, thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of the Security Clearance Careers Podcast. For more information on the military transition and other career advice in national security, you can visit news.clearancejobs.com.